16 is actually a psalm that makes up a group of songs called the Egyptian Halil. Now, you say, what is that? It's actually a set of psalms. If you were a Jewish person, you would be singing every year annually around Passover. It's between Psalm 113 and Psalm 118. And in the Passover, which I've kind of talked a little bit about at our communion service, is the time when the nation of Israel left the land of Egypt. And they were delivered, and it was actually the time when they became a people group, when they, when they gained a sense of identity, when they actually became a congregation, when God identified them as his people and chose them, even though they were the smallest and weakest among the nations, and he delivered them from a great oppression and led them into a place of blessing. And God is using that as a picture to teach us an amazing lesson about what he wants to do in our lives as well, because it speaks of that greater deliverance. That deliverance from sin, as I mentioned earlier, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 116 is a part of those songs, which is a powerful expression of gratitude in answer for our cry for mercy. And so I want to take a look tonight at three aspects regarding the nature of giving thanks to God. And the first one, the first reason why we thank God is that he's a God who listens, now, I don't know about you, communication is a very powerful thing. A lot of us, we think talking is communicating. But how many have ever been talking, to, you were talking to someone and you realize they're not listening? Anybody have that experience? You know, you're talking, but they're not listening. And you actually know that you're not communicating because communication doesn't occur until you understand that the other person understands what you're communicating. And the only way that happens is if they're explaining back to you what you've just said to them, in a sense. Isn't that true? And so, you know, a lot of us, we think we're communicating when we're just talking. What I want to declare to you tonight is our God is a communicator. He not only communicates to us, but he also listens to us when we communicate back to him. I love verse one. He starts out here, and you're going to get a sense, listening to the psalm, what he is thankful for. Verse one, he says, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice, and he heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live, to know that someone hears my cry. You know, I shared this morning, and I love this thought, that when you and I come to Christ, what happens is God's Spirit dwells within us. And that's why God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why? Because God is always with us. And so you and I never need to be alone. We're, you know, most people today are living in loneliness. This is a very lonely time in our culture. You know, we have more means of communication, but less genuine communication. We have more access of ways of communicating with people, and yet people are more lonely than they've ever been before in their lives. But here the psalmist is saying, you know, I never have to feel absolutely alone. I know that God hears my cry. I have someone I can pour my heart out to who will listen and understand. And so we know that God hears our cry and responds to us. But what I think is fascinating is how these psalms are literally put in a specific order. How many think God knows what he's doing when he's guiding these people, putting these psalms together? And you know what I find? That Psalm 115, in a sense, is kind of juxtapositioned with Psalm 116. In other words, there is a, a, an intentional contrast being made between the two psalms. And I want to point it out to you. 
Now, if this psalm is the psalms where God is hearing our cry, listen to what it says in Psalm 115, verse 3. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. In other words, God is sovereign and in control, and he can do what he wants to do. None of us can honestly say that. We can't always implement what we want to do, but God can. And then it says this, in contrast, but... Their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. So now we're going to have a contrast between the true and the living God and the idolatry or the idols that humanity creates. Isn't it interesting? We put a lot of value in that which we're going to put our trust in. Notice they're made out of costly ingredients, silver and gold, but they're made by the hands of men. So idols are man-made. This is in contrast to God whom the heavens do not contain and we have never created. It goes on to say, they have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see. You know, in a few weeks I will be in India. Here's a country, when I'm there, I notice there's a lot of idols in India. It's true. And you see it. People are carrying idols. People are bowing down to idols. And I notice something. They always have, you know, facsimiles of, and representing things. You always see you know, either ears or mouths or eyes. But notice what he's saying. He's saying they have mouths, but they cannot speak. In other words, even though there's a, 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 a facsimilation, there's a representation of the ability to communicate, they don't speak. You know, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. I notice they're always being carried from place to place there. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, these idols, in a sense, are dead. There's no life to them. And that's what happens to people who put their trust in them. They actually are in this realm and dominion of death. I'm going to talk a lot about this tonight. Now, you have to understand something. Why do people worship idols? Because they deep down inside believe that there's something happening as they worship an idol. And let me tell you something. They do. There's a spirit behind the idol, and that's really what they're worshiping, isn't it? But here's what we need to know. Our God is a living God. Our God sees things. Our God hears things. It says regarding the nation of Israel, God, he came down, it says, when he was going to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, I heard the cry of the people. I came down to see it. There's a, there's a picture in our mind that God is intricately aware of our situations. He sees the details of our lives. And so many of us in North America, when we read this stuff, we just think to ourselves, yeah, but that's, that's in other countries that fashion idols. We're not really idolaters, but let's stop and evaluate that for a moment. Because really, it says here in verse 8, all who trust in them. So the issue always comes down to what am I trusting in? And so when I look in North America, I have to ask myself the question, what are we trusting in? And for many people, what are they trusting in? They're trusting in their abilities, they're trusting in themselves, they're trusting in technology, they're trusting in science, they're trusting in government, they're trusting in all kinds of things. And folks, when we put our trust in something other than the true and the living God, that's what idolatry is. And we put a lot of value to it, but the unfortunate part is they promise so much but deliver so little. We can spend our whole life trying to acquire things when things become more important to us than anything else. Above every relationship, when we put our trust in things, eventually those things seem so empty to us in the end, and they don't really save us. It is so sad. They are dead. 
They are controlled by the realm of death and destruction. There's no help in them because they cannot help. You know, the Apostle Paul kind of focuses in on this. You know, sometimes I wonder when I'm reading the New Testament, the more you know the Old Testament, the more the New Testament makes sense to you. And all of a sudden you see these ideas floating from the Old Testament, you know, finding their way into the New Testament. And Paul says this, and he's writing to a church, he's writing to Christians, and he says to them, as for you, you work past tense, dead in your transgressions and sins. What is he saying? There was a time in your life where you were in the dominion of death. Then he goes on to say, in which you used to live. So in other words, there's a lot of people walking around physically living, but yet they're living in a dominion called death. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Folks, there is something going on in our world. There's a general conspiracy. I know we have a lot of you know, conspiracies theorists out there, but listen, there is, a, there is a conspiracy going on, but it's in the spiritual realm. It's organized chaos. It's satanic in nature. There's a prince of the power of the air that's controlling the hearts and minds of people who are living in disobedience to God. And then he says, all of us, he's including himself. There's not one of us that could say, I wasn't a part of that. We were all a part of that at some point in our life. We lived among them at one time. And what were we doing? Gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Now, he's not talking here about our physical body flesh. The Greek word there is sarks. He's talking about our nature that's in rebellion against God. It's our sinful nature. And it, we followed its desires and thoughts. In other words, our self-centered, sinful nature was driving us to to actually satisfy those desires. And they were actually in rebellion against God. We didn't even realize it, but it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Oh, I, I love this. You know, I, the more I read the Bible, the more I see it. God's love, God's compassion, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's mercy. It says, made us alive. Hey, folks, we were once dead. Now we're made alive. How many are beginning to see there's two domains that are being painted here? There's a domain called death and a domain called life. There's the land of the living and the land of the dead. You know, some of these shows aren't too far off. You know, these zombie shows? There's a lot of people walking around. They're really the living dead. They really are. You know, they've captured the idea. You know, but something happens when we come into God's kingdom. He makes us alive. He, he says... He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions for it is by grace you've been saved. You know what grace is? It means God showed, gave us a gift. God showed us favor, something we could never earn or deserve. And he saves us from our sin. But let me just move on to say something very interesting. Let me go back to this idea of God hearing our prayer for a minute. Do you realize that there's a protocol to monarchs, to kings and queens, you know, a number of years ago, Queen Elizabeth came to Red Deer. How many know that? The Queen of England came to our city. Do you guys know that? Queen Elizabeth came to our city because she had a deep interest in children. And one of our own people in our church family, Dr. Victor Ratzlaff, was the head of the pediatrics ward. And in Red Deer, they built a brand new pediatric unit. And Queen Elizabeth came to our city to visit it. Wow. 
wow, that was big stuff. And I can still remember it. You know, people wanted to see the queen. She was actually in our city. But everywhere they went, just before the queen would come, people wanted to give her flowers. People wanted to talk to her. People wanted to see her. People wanted to get close to her. You know, kind of like the royal watch. And they were all there. And Dr. Ratzlaff, who was part of our church family, he was a head of pediatrics. And so they talked to him and said, listen, the queen is going to come and there's a protocol. Do you realize you cannot initiate a conversation with a monarch? You don't walk up and go, hi, Elizabeth, how's it going? That does not fly. You know, how's it like living in Buckingham Palace? How's it like to be that wealthy? You know, what's it like to be that famous? You can't ask those kinds of questions. There's a protocol. You can only speak when spoken to by the queen. You could only answer the question she's asking you, no more, no less. Interesting protocol, isn't it? But you know, I want to say something so exciting. Do you realize that you and I serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the ultimate monarch. But listen to what happened. When Jesus came to earth, he was God in the flesh. And when the disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray, what did Jesus say to them? He said, begin by saying, our Father. Now i got to ask a question. He's changing the protocol. You know, you and I don't wait for God to talk to him, God is inviting us as a child has a relationship with a parent. God is moving aside that protocol and God is allowing us to be able to speak to him. Isn't that beautiful? As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews reflects this idea in chapter four, verse 16, when it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. You know that word with confidence? It, the Greek language, the, you know, I always jokingly say, the Bible wasn't written in the King James language. That's a translation. It's actually from the Greek, okay? I know some people get really excited. It's the word parasis. Parasis means literally the right to speak. Do you realize what God has done because of what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross? The Bible said he made a new and a living way and gave us access into the presence of God and gave us the right to speak. How many of you think that's an amazing thought, that you and I have the right to speak to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? We can cry out to God, and he will hear our cry. Wow. That, to me, is so exciting. Hey, this is bigger than the, the royal watch. This is bigger than the Queen of England coming to render. Every time you and I get on our knees and cry out to God and begin to talk to him, he is listening to us. Wow. You know, if we only understood what we have, it gets me pretty excited. I get a little excited about this. You know, you could tell me, well, yeah, I know so-and-so. You could pull all your trump cards out you want. I go, yeah, but I know the king of kings and the lord of lords. <laughs> Woo! Right? And so do you. So don't be that impressed. You know, I just met so-and-so. Big deal. I just met Jesus. <laughs> And you know, when I talk to him, he's listening. And guess what? He can do some things that most people can't. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Well, let me move on. The second aspect. He gives us life. He gives us life. Listen to verse 3. You know, he is the creator of life. You know, you, 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 he's the one that overcomes death. Right from the very first chapter of Genesis, we find God who created light out of darkness, 
order out of chaos. And we look and scan through the pages of Scripture, we see God creating meaning out of insignificance, beauty out of ashes, hope and purpose out of despair and hopelessness, provision out of impoverishment. How many begin to see that he's creating a dominion of life over death? God delivers us from that place where death once reigned over us. Not only does God hear our cry, but because he hears our cry, he helps us even in life's most challenging and distressful situations. Look at verse 3. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. Oh, I love that word. You know, again, the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew. This word unwary is actually the Hebrew word that we find in the book of Proverbs when it talks about, oh, you that are simple. Oh, you that are inexperienced. You know, how many here have ever said, I made a lot of dumb decisions when I was younger because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I got my hands in the air. Anybody else join my club? Did you guys do that too? Do you know what he says here? He says here, the Lord protects the, the simpletons. Well, we don't like to be called that, you know. Our whole culture is celebrating youth, isn't it? And we're walking around going like they have all the answers. Let me tell you, they don't have all the answers, folks. They're learning about life. Our culture is inverted. Go, go to the Asian culture. They'll tell you, you know, you respect the people who have lived a long time because they have experience. When you're young, you do stupid stuff. You just don't know any better. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. How many know it's really challenging when life distresses our soul? How many, how many tend to allow circumstances to begin to define you? Doesn't that happen? We get pressured by circumstances. They, they frustrate us. We get upset. We worry. We fret. We get you know, angry. You know, we lash out. I'm just telling you what people do in those situations. But listen to this. The psalmist is challenging himself to enter into his blessing. I like what Leslie Allen writes. He says, the human mind does not quickly lose its habit of worrying and needs urging to keep pace with reality instead of dwelling on the nightmares of the past. Isn't that true? You know, what is all this PTSD stuff? You know, post-traumatic stress disorder. I, I'm hearing more people tell me they've got this stuff all the time. And most of them have never been in a war conflict. And they've gone through hell on earth. And that's why they have this post-traumatic stress disorder. We're, we're diagnosing it that way. And I'm saying, yes, there's such a thing as that. I'm not negating that. I'm saying it's real. But what happens when God comes and touches our lives, folks, we don't have to let our mind camp in the past. We now can find a new rest for our soul. We can find a new hope, a new joy, a new peace. You know, we can be delivered and realize that God can sustain us in this realm of life and not no longer live in that realm of the past and darkness. Verse eight, for you, Lord, deliver me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Now, when I read this text, what does your mind do? Well, it does what my mind does. We have a modern mind. We read the psalm and we think, wow, what did God deliver the psalmist from? Doesn't it sound like he, he was almost dead? The cords of death were around me, he saved me from the grave. How many read it that way? You're just saying that, you know, God's kind of restored his life back to him. Doesn't it sound like that? How many say it kind of sounds like that? 
I think it does. I think you're right. It sounds like that, and I think that's how we would interpret it. That's how I would interpret it. How many would like to understand that the ancient Jewish people saw life differently than we do? See, we're looking at the text from a 21st century mindset. We're looking at the text with a Christian lens looking backwards. Do you realize we're interpreting a lot of what's happening in the Old Testament through a New Testament lens? Isn't that true? And I'm not saying that's wrong, by the way. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying sometimes we don't let the text speak for itself. That's all I'm going to suggest here. Let me give you some examples. How many know you realize that when we look at the Old Testament, we're reading the devil into things that the Jewish people never saw him in. If you talk to a Jewish scholar about, you know, who was tempting Adam and Eve on the garden, they don't see Satan there at all. You say, why is that? Because, you see, there's not a lot of satanic things happening in the Old Testament. It's just not there. It's when you get to the New Testament that you actually see the spiritual realm. You see, now we have our eyes open to the spiritual kingdom in a way that the Old Testament doesn't express to the same degree. And then I'll give you another example. You know, you and I, when we're reading from the New Testament, we see the, 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 the resurrection of Jesus. We see this whole hope for a life beyond this life. The New Testament's filled with this stuff. But when I go to the Old Testament, if I only have the Old Testament, I don't see that. There may be one verse that talks about life after death in the entire Old Testament. And that tells me that the Bible is actually a progressive vision. It's bringing us somewhere. And that text that talks about that is found in the book of Daniel, which was written quite a bit later than many of the other parts of the Old Testament. And so we're looking at this, and rightfully so, by the way, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old. We're seeing it correctly through the lens of Christ. Yes, we are. But what I'm trying to say is how many would like to see this text as a Jewish person would see it at at that time? Would anybody like to see it that way? Because all of a sudden, you're going to see something a little differently. And I have to confess, I don't see it this way. But you know what? All these years of reading and studying, and I'm going, hey, I get what they're saying. As a matter of fact, Bernhard Anderson shares these insults, insights into the cultural aspects of life and death as an ancient Jewish person would understand it. This is what he says. I think this is fascinating. Israel appropriated the old mythical language and reinterpreted it to express historical experience of threat and, and limitation, which seemed to call into question the sovereignty of God. Do you know what they were doing? They would take an idea and then they would build upon it. And a lot of times, and we see this in the world today, that you know, one religious group, you know, when they build a building for worship, when they get conquered by another group, they just take over the building and repurpose it. Do you know that's what we do? Christians have done that. Muslims have done that. That's true. We do that kind of stuff. They're going to take an idea and repurpose it here. As a matter of fact, in the Psalms, death is a power. In the Canaanite understanding, it was considered a god, an idol, a stronghold, right? A deity. But now, they know that that's not the truth, but they realize, they see this as a a deposed king. They see it as a power source, though no longer a deity. It reaches out greedily to lay hold of the living, a deposed king whose shadowy kingdom encroaches upon the historical world, an enemy that stands in opposition to the purposes of God. The psalmist testifies that it's only God who can save one from death's powers. Then he goes on to say this, what then is the concern of the psalmist when they give thanks to Yahweh for delivering them from the power of death? Certainly they're not just glad to retain physical life or to add more years to their life or to enhance the life they now enjoy with greater comfort or security. You see, that's how we see it. 
How many of that's how we see life? You know, I've been spared death, or I got more years to live, or you know what, my life is going to be enhanced. I'm going to have more comfort and security in life. He said that's a modern conception of life, whose emptiness is evidently disclosed. What he's saying is, that's a very shallow way of looking at it. Let me go on to share what they would see. According to Israel's way of thinking, life is missed when people do not choose it. You go, excuse me? You mean you got to choose life? Yeah, read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20. There's an, you know, and it says this. If you walk with God and obey God and keep his covenant, you are walking in life. If you turn your back on God and his covenant and his ways, you're choosing death. That's why the scripture says, see, I've set before you life and death, therefore choose life. Are we catching on? You see, you know what? There's a lot of people today in our culture, they're living in death. They've chosen death. They've turned their backs on God. They're worshiping an idol. They're not trusting in the true and the living God. They're being dominated by this realm of death. They're losing a certain quality of life. Christopher Barth, another scholar, says it this way, the restoration of life that they have lost or its radical renewal through, uh, through, I'm skipping one here, sorry. Okay, yeah, here it is. That is the life that is given through relationship to God in the covenant community. In other words, let, let me just say it this way. Life for the Psalms means, well, I'm quote Barth again. He says, life for the Psalms means the historical formation and appearance of the people of God, while death means they're sinking back into the natural existence of the heathen fundamentally without history. Let me try to explain what they're talking about here, because I'm going to summarize it. I know I'm reading this stuff, and you're going, because I have a chance to think about it, and you're just hearing it for the first time. What he's saying is simply this. That when you're not a part of God's kingdom, a lot of people today don't see life as a linear thing. They don't see that there's a creation, that there's a beginning, that you and I can be part of something greater than ourselves, that we're actually identified as God's people. Do you, you, when you read the Bible, really it's about God revealing himself to a family and you and I become part of that story. When you and I give our life to Christ, we become part of God's major story. We actually are grafted in, it says in the New Testament, into this history. You and I become sons and daughters of Abraham. You and I become like Abraham, the father of the faithful. You and I inherit all the blessings and promises that God has brought to Israel. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, he calls us the Israel of God. He calls us the people of God. He tells us that we're going to have all those blessings that are going to be fulfilled in our lives and it's fulfilled through the person of Christ. You and I actually have a divine destiny. We, you know, History is not secular like some groups teach us. There are groups out there trying to tell us that life is just a cyclical thing over and over repeating the same things. No, the scriptures argue against that. It's linear. There is a beginning. There's a creator. There's a purpose in this life. There's a meaning to it. There's a, a group of people we can be a part of. We can know the true and the living God. You and I can end up experiencing God God's divine destiny for our lives, which is union with God and union with his people for all of eternity. That is so different, folks. And what these scholars are saying is, listen, when, when people are choosing death, what they're choosing is to turn their back on a relationship with God, in community with God, in covenant with God, and with God's people. And they're actually choosing death and they don't even realize it. You see, why did Jesus come? Listen to what Jesus said. Well, I say it this way. It means that when we choose death, we lose community, a sense of history, and a sense of belonging. Now, how many say, look at our culture today. I will argue with you today, this is a culture of death. 
You see symbols of death everywhere. People are embracing death today. It's all about killing and destroying. It's all about ending life prematurely. It's all about terminating life at the beginning. I could just go on and on and talk about how broken and fractured and how, uh, you know, people are so lonely. They can't even communicate. They don't even know how to communicate today. It's a culture of death. And Jesus says it this way, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, but I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. Jesus has come to give us life. Jesus is in the dominion of life. Jesus wants to take us out of the kingdom of darkness and move us into the kingdom of his dear son. The father wants us to experience life. He's for life, folks. Let me move on. When I was thinking about the three aspects, I thought, okay, two reasons why we worship God. One, God hears me. That's why the psalmist says, I love him, because he hears my cry. He's not only a deliverer, but God is in relationship with me. He hears me. You know, I have access. I have a right to talk to him. Secondly, I'm a part of the kingdom of life. God is for life. How many say, I would rather have life than death? I want to experience the dominion of life over the dominion of death. I want to have meaning rather than meaningless. I want to have hope rather than despair. I want to have joy rather than sorrow. It seems really obvious to me that we want life. But then how do we go about expressing praise to God? How could we ever repay our Lord for all that he is and does on our behalf? And the psalmist raises the question in verse 12. Look what it says. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? You know, we're singing of the goodness of the Lord. Can I just say, I've been a Christian for over four decades, and I'm going to tell you, to walk with God in this way has been the greatest experience of my life. It has been amazing. I can tell you, I can declare to you, God is good. I can tell you that God is gracious. I can tell you that God is forgiving. I can declare to you, God is compassionate. God is a forgiver of our transgressions and sins. How many are so thankful for that? God gives you new beginnings. Listen, every morning I can wake up. You know, the Bible says, you know, your mercies are new every morning. I can wake up and say, Lord, it's a new day. There's new mercies awaiting us. Oh, God, I look with hope and anticipation. I don't live in fear and distress every single day. I live with an anticipation that God has good things in store for our lives lives. What a way to live. Isn't that amazing? A lot of people don't live like this. Their whole heads are in a whole different square. You know, look at verse 13. It says here, how do I render thanks to the Lord? Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord, but where do we do it? What does it say? In the presence of his people. You know, folks, I want to just say something. You know these people walk around going, I don't need anybody, it's just me and Jesus. You know, I can walk in the woods, just me and Jesus. I'm going, you cannot render thanksgiving to God with just you and Jesus. That's a beginning point. But if we are going to really express thanksgiving to God, we do it in community. I come to him every morning. I come to him at night. I come to him on Sundays. We come like the last uh, week here, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, what were we doing rendering thanks and praise to God? What an amazing thing to be able to do that. And what happens is when we gather together, the sense of God's presence intensifies. How many have noticed that? I can be praising God by myself, but man, when I come together with other people who are opening up to God, my soul goes to another level. It's powerful. You know, Dr. Longman, who I've had the privilege of having as a teacher, as a biblical scholar, he says this, one may question whether the cup is metaphorical or literal, since this is the only place where it is mentioned in the Old Testament, the cup of salvation. Usually it's the cup of God's judgment, but here's the cup of salvation. 
He says if it's literal, it may be referring to some kind of a drink offering which was carried out according to a regular schedule as part of the burnt or peace offerings because they were thank offerings. But then we get to verse 15, probably the one verse that I've, I've misquoted the most, the one I've taken out of context the most. You say, what is it, Pastor? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. How many times do we take texts out of context? A lot more than we like to admit. I've, I've been guilty of it. I'm confessing. I've done it. I don't think it's a good idea, but I think I've done it lots. This is one I've done it with. Because here you are trying to encourage and help a family walk through sorrow and loss and grief, and you're just saying, you know, listen, they're, they're precious in God's sight, the death of his saints. But listen, that's not what this text is teaching. It's really missing the point. And when I thought about it and I looked into it, you know the word that's translated there, precious, is actually a word that means heavy. Heavy. Now, when you think about bartering and in the old system, you know what they were trading? They had metals. And the more, the more metal, the more weight, the more you were paying out. In the sense, it was heavier. And that's why some translators translated it precious, but some of them translated costly. It's costly. Hmm. Dr. Longman points this out. As translated in the NIV, verse 15 seems strange and out of context, appearing to say that God delights in the death of his faithful servants. After all, the psalmist is thanking God for preserving him from death. The NAB and the NJB seem to get it right, translating yagar as costly rather than precious. In other words, the death of his faithful servants pains God. You say, Why? Does this even make sense that it pains God, the death of his servants? Why doesn't God stop it? Can I, I'm going to just give you such a great sense of what's going on here. Death is our enemy. Folks, death is our enemy. Jesus came to earth to conquer death. And how did he do it? By dying. But he didn't stay dead. He came alive. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. And folks, you and I have a hope that we will live in all of eternity because Jesus Christ conquered death. And here's the good news. When you get to the book of Revelation, there will come a time when there will be no more death. Woo! That's what it's about. And God is against death. It's an enemy of humanity. You know, and I'm so excited. Maybe you can tell. I get excited about this stuff. You know, if I had my way, I would say, Jesus, come back today. Destroy the world as we know it. Destroy it. Not in the sense of destroying it, but in the sense of taking all the broken, uh, messed up, fragmented, sorrow, sinful losses and transform it and renew it so you and I would have no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, no more dying, no more darkness, no more evil. Do you know evil is the absence of good? No more evil. How many say, I, I, I can handle that. I can handle that. That's called the blessed hope. That's what we're living towards. We're moving towards. But let me, let me close here. Psalm 116, verse 17. 
I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So how do we come and give a thank offering to God? Well, there's a New Testament text that I think brings this out. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, openly professing his name. Do you know when you and I profess the name of Jesus, that's a thank offering to God. We are exalting him. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the next verse. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifice, God is pleased. You know what we're doing? We walk around going, Lord, I want to praise you with my lips, and I want to take advantage and redeem every opportunity to do good. And why do we do good? It's not so that people will think I'm a wonderful person, I'm a great philanthropist, because that's what that's motivates a lot of people. But I'm doing this for you as a thank offering. Because a lot of times people don't appreciate what you're doing. Isn't that true? How many of us that's true? You've done something beautiful and they don't even appreciate it. But when you're doing it for Jesus, he's going, I love it. That's a thank offering to me. He sees that. He sees what you're doing. It's beautiful. Why don't we stand tonight as we close? You know, as I was preparing this message, you could tell I get excited about things, you know, and then I was thinking about, so what difference does this psalm make? I, I've kind of explained it to you. Have I not? Okay, we got it now. So what difference does it make? Here's what difference it makes. Choose life. You see, we can either be in the dominion of death or the dominion of life. I may say, I want to choose life. I want to choose life. Isn't that beautiful? I'm telling you, choose life. How do I choose life, Pastor? I embrace the person of Christ. You see, Christ is actually God in the flesh. I'm choosing to come into a covenant relationship with him. I'm, I'm responding to his invitation. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will bring rest for your soul. How many say, man, I want rest for my soul. I want peace. I want joy. See, come to Jesus. You're choosing life. Follow his ways. Turn your back on the ways of this world in all its nonsense. You know, I always say to people, you know what sin is? Sin is a form of insanity because it's self-destructive and it destroys others. There's nothing healthy about it. Turn to God with all of your hearts. Choose life rather than death. And just with every head bowed right now, just without looking around, I'm gonna ask the question. Maybe tonight you say, you know what, Pastor? I've heard the call of God on my soul. I wanna choose life. And maybe I've never given my life to Jesus. But tonight I wanna do that. I wanna choose life. He is the Prince of life. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the one that's going to bring hope into your soul. He's the one that's going to forgive you. He's the one that's going to show you mercy. He's the one that's going to show you compassion. And that's you tonight. You want to do that. Just raise your hand. I won't do anything. Yeah, God bless you. Other people. You've never done this before. Maybe you've already done it before. That's okay. You can recommit. I don't have a problem with that. You've never done this before. Okay, some of you are saying, yeah, that's me. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Don't be afraid. Just pray with me right now in your heart of hearts, just say this prayer. Father in heaven, I ask you to forgive me. I pray that you'll deliver me from the dominion of darkness. I receive you as my Lord and my King and my Savior, and I embrace your kingdom, the kingdom of life 
and light. I now am going to be your humble servant, following you in your ways and experiencing the benefits of your kingdom. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight. If you've made that decision, would you go to the guest reception area? We have a little book.